Um, I'm Kevin. I'm one of the elders. Um, I, I've recently been uh, promoted from Edler, but we got that fixed on the website, so that's good. So I'm now an elder. That's um, <laughs> Some of you may or you may not have ever seen the movie Ants. Now, I know I'm showing my age. It came out about five years ago, 1998. Oh, wait, that's not five. Ten, okay, long time ago. But this movie, now, I, there's, some, there's, some, it, there's some question as to which movie's better, A Bug's Life or Ants. And I'm on the Ants, uh, I'm on the Ants, I'm in the Ants camp. Why? Woody Allen. That's, that's really basically the only reason. Um, and, and if you've ever seen this movie, you probably remember how it starts out. I mean, it starts out with Z. Actually, Z is Z4195. That's what he's called. That's his name. So he didn't even have a name. He's like a number and, it is, and, and a letter. And, and it starts out, see, he's a worker ant, you know. And, and you know how we, we, we're told in Proverbs, you know, look at the ant. So that's what we're going to do. Um, and, and, and when he's a worker ant, so he, he, he and all of the millions of other ants are like under the ground and they're doing, and, they, and it looks like, they've got it set up, it looks like a coal mine. I mean, they just look like it's just, you know, mundane, you know, uh, m- uh, monotonous work. And so when every now and then it looks, in, in the movie, you kind of get the idea as it's starting out that they lose motivation for working. So uh, this ant, this particular ant, Z, is in the office of the motivational counselor. It's like a motivational counselor, and his job is to get them motivated to get back out there and work again and be like the, you know, the, the super organism of the ants, right? And he's talking to him, and, and, and he tells him, you know, it's, it's really funny. He starts out, he's like, my mother never had time for me, is what he tells him. He said, you know, when you're a middle child in a family of five million, see, Woody Allen is the voice of that. I, I just love it. You never get any attention. I mean, how's it possible, right? He's like, I don't think I was ever cut out to be a worker ant. I mean, I feel physically inadequate. I've never been able to lift more than ten times my weight. He's like, and really... I mean, this whole superorganism thing, I don't get it. You know, I've try, tried, I've tried it, but I just don't get it. What about me? What about my needs? And he ends up by saying, the whole system just makes me feel insignificant. And then the motivational counselor says, excellent, we've made a breakthrough. You are insignificant. He's like, I am? And then that's how the movie opens up. Have you ever felt that way? And that's, a, that's a rhetorical question because I'm sure that you have. And it's really funny when you're, when you're watching the movie, but the reason it's so effective is because it really, it really kind of hits us close to home. So when we really think about it, there are many times when we have felt insignificant and many times when we have felt a part of some oppressive system, you know. True or not? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, this, have we not felt this way at, at least one time in our life? If not right now, you may be sitting here right now thinking, thinking it and thinking you shouldn't be thinking it or something like that. Now, I remember a time when I, and I felt like that way, you know, probably many times in my life, but I, I do remember a specific time, probably one of the lowest points um, in my life. And, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but I want to kind of go into it a little bit. But I remember um, I was... I remember a night, it was one night, and I was praying to God, which was not my habit. I didn't have a habit of doing this. This, this was 
a time, a really dark time in my life. And I was sitting at what they called in Lubbock, Texas, which is West Texas, you know, at the bottom of the rectangular part. There's a town there called West Texas. It's not called West Texas. That'd be cool. Probably is somewhere, but it's called Lubbock, Texas. And now, Texas, uh, West Texas is not known for water. So what they do, they have these things called Playa Lakes. They came up with a really neat name, Playa. Sounds better. Sounds better than Dirty Old Pond. Because what they would do is they'd get a big tractor, and they would just move out some dirt, dig a big hole in the ground, and then they would pump in some water from I don't know where. And it would fill up. And then ducks would live there, uh, you know, some fit, most of the fish would live and some wouldn't, you know, see them floating around. So I would be, I, I remember one night I was sitting, it, it, but it was the closest thing to a lake. I know that's very offensive to people who for, are from, uh, you know, the mountain, mountainous region of, of Tennessee and North Carolina, um, that I would call it a lake, but I'm just going to call it that, you know, just so I can keep moving here. And I was sitting out and I wanted to pray. So I'm, I'm sitting in my car. Now I had I've had a I have had a variety I've had a variety of, of interesting cars. I told you about the Volkswagen once, but this one was my nineteen eighty one Oldsmobile Toronado. This thing it was now in, in you know eighty one I guess it making everything electric and a button was really cool so and everything was silver like you just wanted everything to look like it was made of, of, of silver or chrome or something so everything I mean the seats go up the seats go down they go back they tilt they do everything and it had a sunroof or moonroof whichever time of day it is and it had one of those and then, and then now it had now it's a big car with a big engine. So it, it had like this amazing shock absorber, shock, shock absorber system. I don't know what you call it. Suspension. There we go. I mean, you could go over a speed bump. That's what we call them in Texas. Speed bump. And you would hardly know. I mean, just, the tires would go up. Whoosh, whoosh, you know. And when you turn the corner, it's like one of those old 70s police car chase shows, you know, where the whole car would go. They almost roll as it's turning the corner. This is what I was sitting in, and and I, I, it had like these velour seats, you know, nice and soft. And I was looking out over the lake, and I I remember I remember feeling the most alone I'd ever felt in my life. I felt really like I was no one, like I I was not. I almost felt. Like I wasn't, a, a, like I didn't exist. But I knew I did, which is extremely painful when you feel like that. If you felt that way, you know. The thing is, there's some truth to that. I mean, th there is some truth. Now, notice I said some truth to that. I want to look at Ecclesiastes. This is a book uh, of the Bible I go to whenever I'm feeling down and want some encouragement. So I go to Ecclesiastes um, for a little pick-me-up. So here we have Ecclesiastes 3.19. And it says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. All right, we're starting out on a high note there. Uh, as one dies, so, the, uh, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Feel better? All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. 
I want to I want to read out of Nehemiah now. Um, look at Nehemiah chapter twelve, verse one. And as I'm reading all these names, I uh, and I'll probably read them poorly. Uh, Luke and I have established that we can't do that very well. I, I have established it better than he has, but still. Um, but I'm going to go through this. Um, and I want you to notice as I'm reading the care that is taken to properly identify people. I mean, great care is taken. It's not just a list of names. It's actually a list of names with some descriptions of who these people are and what their place in life is. And some of it is why they are on the, in the list and, and so on. I really want you to notice that. And I want you not to notice how poorly I mispronounced these. Um, or pronounced them, actually. <clears throat> All right. These are the priests and the Levites who came up was Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltel, and Heshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shekinai, Rehom, Meramoth, Edo, Ginathoi, Abijai, Mijamin, Medai, Bilgai, no laughing, <laughs> makes you want to laugh, doesn't it? Shemaiah, Jorah, Jorib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. Now, and then, and then it says, takes careful. It's just not just a list of names. It says these were the chiefs of the priests, and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua, or Heshua. I don't know. <clears throat> All right. Now I'm going to read a little bit more because then it it, then it it says now the Levites and the Levites, Heshua, Benui, Cadmiel. Sherebiah, Judah, and Matani, who were with his brothers, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakukah and Uni, Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Heshua was the father of Jochum, and Joachim the father of El Elishib, and Elishib the father of Joada, and Joada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Moriah, and Jeremiah, and Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, and Amariah, Jehonanan, and Malachi, Jonathan, of Shabani, Joseph, oh, it feels good to get one like that, of Hiram, Adna, of Meroth, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Jenathon, Meshalem, Abijah, Zikri, of Mehemon, okay, I'm passing, Modiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shamua, and Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Jerobib, Jero, Jerobib, okay, Matani, a Jedi, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hikai, Ashabiah, and Jediah, Nathaniel. In the days of Elishib, Joada, Jonathan, and Jedui, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. Now it's kind of important that, you know, we're seeing that, that it says were recorded. We're going to get to that. We're going to comment on that in a minute. <coughs> 
So too were the priests of the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles. We're going to talk about that. Until the days of Jonathan, the son of Elishib, and the chiefs of Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Heshua, the son of Cadmiel, and their brothers who stood opposite them. Look at the detail. Who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakhukai, Abadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Heshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. Okay. <coughs> Thank you for uh, not laughing. But um, why all the names? Anybody remember uh, Super Bowl 36? I mean, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, immediately after 9-11, there was the Super Bowl, as usual. But the halftime show was different this time. Um, you remember U2 was the band. And it was one of the only halftime shows I've ever seen where it wasn't a bunch of, I mean, just cheese, you know. I mean, scantily clad, cheerleaders running around, making it even, you know, shallower than it already is, probably. But this one was different. U2, they come out in U2 fashion, bigger than life, right? A giant, I don't know if it was a round stage or in the shape of a heart or something. This, it, there's always got to be something that Bono can run around on. He's had, he, he, and then after that, he's so out of breath he can barely sing. But I mean, he did. So it's got that stage around it. But as he's singing Street with No Names, behind the stage is a tall screen. And projected on the screen are names. And it's names of people who died in the World Trade Center towers and in the airplanes that crashed. Police officers and fire department uh, firefighters are listed on this, and they're scrolling up as the song. It's extremely powerful. I mean, I, I'll never forget that one. I, I remember watching it, you know, as they go up. And they, and they did it. So It wasn't like the credits at the end of a movie where they go so fast you can't read them. They were going really slowly. And... And you wanted to read those names. And I remember, even though I didn't know any of those people, I, I, I was glued to the names. <laughs> I'm watching. I'm reading. They even have middle initials, some of them. And I'm thinking, these were all people. And these were all people that God created. God created all of these souls. And He knew, it says in Psalms, even before the foundations of the earth, all of their days, what they would be like. See, as image bearers, God has given us, because we, we retain, even in our fallenness, we retain, we, we remain image bearers. We retain some of the image of God. And we don't lose that just because of the fall. Just because of our depravity, we haven't lost our... our uh, kind of place as image bearers. I mean, we still have that. And so we know 
that there's something significant about a person. That's why a person must be named. And we don't name our children Z4915 or whatever. And we don't say this one, that one, that one over there. And so we knew, watching that, we didn't have to ask, lost or not. It doesn't matter if you're a lost person, a Christian, if you know God or not. You didn't have to ask, why the names? So I want us to realize that it really is God who chose to put those names, ultimately because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that's why the names. God wanted them there. It's important. And the people of Israel were getting really used to being, feeling insignificant, feeling small. I mean, the people of Israel were, remember, here, unless we, I don't want to forget this, because we started Nehemiah this way, and we've been going through for, for several weeks, and so it, it, we can forget. I'd like to look at Nehemiah 1.3 real quick. Let's not, let's not forget this. This is just Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> And, and his brothers come to Nehemiah, Nehemiah's brother, one of them, and some men from Judah. And then he says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And they are scattered, and they are small, and they are not able to defend themselves and they feel insignificant. They are blending in with the nations of the earth and they knew in their hearts that that was not God's plan at that time. God's plan was to have the people of God living in a city that would shine, as the song said, for the whole world to see what God is like and who He is. And they were looking to a promise because they knew Scripture and knew the prophecies. And they were looking to a promise of, a, of an anointed one, of a great king. And now that they were scattered, they were now looking to the promise of restoration, which had been prophesied. And they were well aware of that. But they were feeling, as, as you can imagine, pretty small. Now, I want to talk about our communities here for a second because I think this really, um, this really helps us drive home the, the point of, of legacy here in, in the city. See, because God, God had, had always intended Israel to be a city that had separated itself from the world, um, not because it, it didn't want it didn't have a mission for the world, but because it did. Because in God's plan, in His story, that's how He was setting a people apart, knowing that out of that people, the world would be blessed. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Well, in our communities, our mission is the city, and we want to be we want to build a city in a city. We want to be a city that shines, shows God who people are. But now, of course, instead of, of it being um, a nationality thing, we know that Jesus gave the Great Commission and said, go into all the world 
all nations, all people. We know that Paul made it clear that it didn't matter what our nationality was, but that the gospel was for us. And so in our communities, names are really important. I mean, I was just, uh, Wes is one of our leaders, and he and I were just talking and grappling over how, you know, a better system and a better way to be organized and and keep up with names to communicate with people, to follow up with people, and to have people's names, to learn them, to know something about them. And you know what? If all you ever do is show up here on Sunday morning, we want you. We're glad you're here. But it's so easy to, to just kind of blend in with people. And then people don't really know about you. They don't really know who you are. And when you're in the communities, though, that's when we get to know people. And it does get a little messy, as Luke pointed out last week. It does get a little You know, we do get irritated with each other. But then we can also preach the gospel to each other. Our group last this past week on Thursday, we had a great, great discussion about the gospel. And it it wasn't easy. I mean it was we had to work through it. But we couldn't we don't do that here on Sunday morning. So it's important. Um, I'd like to read Philippians um, four three. I, I gave. I, thank you, Christian. I walked up to Christian with like a whole list of scriptures. <laughs> we really do. If you want to look these up, go ahead. But it's quite a few, and, and we're going to be flipping through quite a few scriptures. Um, names are important to God. God has a book with names in them. Okay. Um, we read in Philippians, uh, Paul mentions, it says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. Name's Clement. We know Clement now. We know who he is. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And we know we read in Revelation more about this book. It's actually the Lamb's book of life. So it's Jesus' book. The Bible tells us that his name will never be blotted out. So if you're a Christian today, you have your name in the book of life. You're written there. Your name. I don't know what the name looks like. Okay, so don't drill me on that. I don't know if it sounds like Kevin Allen Gentry. I don't know, but I know it's me. I know I'm identified by God who knows me better than anyone in that book. So names and matter. So what's the best place you've ever seen your name written? Was it a check? Um, diploma? Traffic ticket? No, that's... The receipt after you pay the traffic ticket. Um, I don't know. Where, where else have you... I mean, diploma's a big one for me or when I graduated from college because that barely happened. <laughs> I'm going to take that thing to my grave. But I tell you where the best place I ever saw my name, <clears throat> it was in my wife's prayer journal. I know. You can go ahead and say, oh, if you want to. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. No. No getting sick. I remember when we, when we met when I met Rebecca, <laughs> um, it was it was right after 
It was really right after that moment I told you about, I described earlier, where I was looking out over the lake, feeling completely lost and insignificant, small. And right after that, I met Rebecca and we, and we became good friends really soon. And I remember um, I, I found her prayer journal and I started looking through it. No, I didn't ask for permission. You find something like that. Come on. You're going to read it. And I remember first seeing a prayer that said, that was something to the effect of, I pray for my future husband that he will be someone who loves God, you know, or, or something like that. You know, it was something to that effect. And then I fl- there was a few others, you know, just little prayers that she would write down. And then, and then I came to one where my I was mentioned, and it, it said something, you know, I pray for Kevin. Pray that he knows how much you love him, Jesus, or something like that. And I remember at that moment I knew, and I didn't know before that. She didn't say anything about husband in there, but, but I just knew in my heart that, I was that husband that was mentioned on the pages before. And she may not have known that. I, I did, though. I knew. So that's the best place I've ever seen my name written. She could have just said, that guy at work. I pray for all the guys at work. Or, you know, because we worked at Subway. We were sandwich artists. <laughs> Looking back now, I see that the moment of feeling most significant, insignificant, feeling most insignificant, feeling so small, so lonely, it was actually, that actually was one of the most significant moments of my life. That's actually, that could be up there as one of the best times of my life is sitting in that car feeling that way. Because of what happened, what God did with it from that point on. Because that was a prayer. And God heard my cry. In fact, he knew about it before I even cried out to him. See, the times when you're at your worst, I want you to think now about yourself. Times when you're at your very worst, or you think it's your worst, that could actually be one of the best times of your life. It could be one of the most significant moments of your life. Because you're like dust. Until God breathes His Spirit into you. Now, I mean, when we get that, that's when we begin to see how big God is. But when we think we're pretty good, and we're a pretty good person, and we're doing okay, we just need a little nudge from God, we don't see God very big. We don't see what Jesus did on the cross as very much. And so we don't have, as we've, you know, started to use the terminology, we, we don't have a high Christology. We don't see Jesus for who He actually is. Awesome and mighty in power. Huge. And we're dust. Because Ecclesiastes actually said that. He told us that. You are dust. Next time you're feeling down, go to Ecclesiastes. No. Actually do. 
don't just just don't stay there though. You move out of there. It's... But the interesting thing is meeting my wife. See, because I could end the story now. I met my wife. All is good. <laughs> meeting my wife was not the solution and not the remedy. That was not. As much as I probably thought it was at the time, it wasn't. It is not what I needed for that wretched state that I was in. Wretched. Sandra looked that up for us in our community the other night, and it means something to the effect of going through a miserable trial. Or in the midst of a miserable trial, you're, it's, you're wretched. That's what that... That was one of the definitions she came up with. And that really helped us understand. Because some of us are going through miserable trials right now. So what's the remedy then? Was it meeting my wife? No. Because if you think that getting married is going to be the remedy, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Because that's when you start needing the remedy even more. The gospel, the cross, was and is always the remedy that I needed. And it's the one you need. I want to look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. It's like Kevin's saying we're dust, all is vanity. We're all at a low point right now, right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And he's not just talking about money, even though this scripture really does come out of a context where money is the issue. But Paul is really pointing to a higher theological point to help make his point about money, and that is that Jesus gave up the glory of heaven and all its wealth, everything that heavenly existence is, he gave it up to become dust because he became a man. And we have learned already that man is dust and has no advantage over animals in that way, or ants. And he became that for us. He became lowly and insignificant. He became alongside thieves, criminals. He became like nothing for us. See, what I needed was a new creation. What I needed was to be recreated. What I needed was to have breath breathed into me because I'm dust. So when I when I realized that in that car that day, that actually that may be one of the best times of my life. Look at Genesis two seven. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay. And the man became a living creature. Done, right? No. Not done. Look at Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead 
dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. First Corinthians fifteen forty five. Wow, you're fast. Awesome. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. Now at school as a teacher I always say living being just to be funny. But really it's kinda like that. Because a bean is just an organic, you know, matter thing that came out of the ground, right? Became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Last Adam, Christ. So look at this. Jesus creates man because he was there in the beginning and, and was in the creation of all things that are, that exist. And then Jesus recreates man. Or I even want to say recreate instead of regenerate because we know he makes us a new creation. So you might still be dust. I mean, you might be sitting there going, yeah, I'm dust, but I don't know what you're talking about with this second Adam and, and I don't know Jesus. So what, really what, what you are then is you're kind of like a dead body without any breath then. You know, if you don't know Jesus, that means, then, then that means your name's not in his book. So that's that. It's good. It's it's really good for us to recognize where we are, because if we have a false sense of how much we are dust and insignificant, if we have a false sense of our insignificance, we don't really realize it. We're not going to need salvation, are we? We're not going to think we need it. So that might be you. And you might, I don't know, maybe God is speaking to your heart right now about that. I pray that the Holy Spirit does. I pray that this is a moment today in your life where you realize how wretched you are. Because that's what we're all doing, by the way. So you can see how big Jesus is. I want, to, I want to read uh, verse 27 in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 12, verse 27. <clears throat> so now, now we passed all the names. We get to the fun part of this chapter. And the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. Now, see, Nehemiah had to do some research lists, and it, th- those lists weren't just laying around in plain sight, okay? He had to look through the book of the Chronicles, and he had to go to the, I don't know, the Mormon library of family trees or whatever, you know. He had, he had to do some, some research. He knew how to do that, or he knew who to delegate it to. He got it done. So he was interested, he, he was interested in names because God was. So it mattered who these people were. It says to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Lyres? Whatever that is. Not people lying, just an instrument with strings. 
Now, I told you earlier that I was going to say something about the detail. See, it was mentioned earlier that uh, something about David, the man of God. See, what they're doing here is they're mentioning some instruments that David kind of describes in his psalms. And when he organized worship, that is how... It's, it, those are the traditional instruments that they used. And it's significant that they're going back to those instruments. Let me read the rest and then I'll talk about that again. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And the wall of Jerusalem, listen, the wall of Jerusalem without God's presence and without His people, His sanctified people, that was not a finished work any more than the body of Adam without God's breath. Because we read in Genesis that He breathed into Him. And then it became a finished work. So we're really getting to work here. They've already built the walls, but we know that they didn't stop there or Nehemiah would have only been half as long as it is. See, the Israelites had been living around other nations and around pagans and they were getting really used to, surely they were getting used to, the way of life. They, and they, even, they were getting used to not purifying themselves and others. And, uh, and they were getting used to not having temple worship. And they were getting used to do, basically doing things. I mean, some of us... They couldn't help it. They were being exiled. They were in exile, and that was actually part of the worst part of being in exile, by the way, because it was a great blessing and joy. This type of worship that God had organized for His people, had prescribed for His people, and they were using other instruments, probably. So what we see then is a return. So really all these, these kind of reforms that we read about, they're really kind of like a return. They're reforms, but they're, it's, a, it's a return reform. Back to something that was already good. And it was the way that God wanted His people to worship at that time, the law that was given to the Israelites at that time, those people, and they were returning to it. And it was a time for them to be a peculiar people again. To be different and set apart. To shine because they looked different. So what about us? I mean, we know that we are to be a peculiar people. And when the Spirit of Christ is in us and the Holy Spirit is, is transforming us and changing us and sanctifying us as a people setting us apart in, the, in just as significant a way as he did the Israelites, even though it doesn't look the same now. We do things differently. We do marriage differently. We do work differently. It, it is different. We do money differently. It should look different. It should be a little peculiar to some people. People should think, I don't know about that. That looks, that's kind of strange. 
It should. We don't do it just for the sake of being strange, but we do it because we're changed on the inside out, from the inside out. Now, you might be a Christian who's afraid of this, all the law stuff, the law talk, because I'm talking about laws, you know. They were going back to the law of Moses, and, and it is a good thing, and we're not under the law. And, and some of us feel like that if we have a love of the law, that we somehow stand against this, our new covenant that we're under, that we're in. The thing is, though, the law is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And it shows us, first it shows us God's holiness. So if you delight in the law, you're delighting in God's holiness because that law isn't, it's really just an overflow of who he, his holiness. God's not going to create some, uh, an unholy law. It's not going to create something that doesn't reflect him. It does, and it points to him, and it shows who he is. And our utter failure to obey the law that points to him too. Because it shows us our desperate need for salvation. Because we can't even get close to obeying and, and really reaching and obtaining the holiness that is God. Not in and of ourselves. So it shows us the need for for the gospel, for something, some power that's not us. So look at Romans seven twenty one. I love this. We were talking about this in our group the other night, or maybe I didn't. Did I give that to you? Okay, we're talking about Paul. He he's doing what I call as a teacher. I think aloud. So he gets good points for that. If I was sitting in his classroom evaluating him, I'd give him four points. Think aloud. Good job, Paul. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Who even personifies evil like it's like sitting there ready to pounce? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Okay? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Exclamation point. It's not, it's not one of those texting ones like we're talking about in our group. You know, like people write a text and it's got four exclamation points behind it and all it is is, I'll be there in a minute. Smiley face after that. This exclamation point means something. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? Jesus All right, I want to read uh, verse 31 in Nehemiah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, then I brought, up, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs 
that gave thanks. Could you imagine? They haven't seen anything like this in a long time, right? I mean, how long, how long has it been since they've seen choirs listen to the sound of people with joy singing to the Lord? One went up to the south wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Matani, son of Micaiah, son of Zechariah, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, Hanani before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Now, they're getting ready. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read through this because this is going to take us all the way. Uh, it's, it's going to take us almost all the way through Nehemiah because we're reading, uh, I mean, chapter 12, we're reading that whole thing today. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the, to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Elikim, Messani, I mean Messiah, Miniman, Micaiah, Elani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. Trumpets are loud, aren't they? Have you ever been like, near someone who's blowing a trumpet? <laughs> I love that. It's not just one trumpet, it's trumpets. And Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehon, Jehonan, Elam, Ezer. And the singers sing, I mean no disrespect to that guy anyway, sing with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I mean, it's interesting though, I'm about to read just the last part, how inseparable, as I'm reading this last part, I want you to notice how seamless and inseparable it, the, their life of worship was from their money. So we talked about how we do money differently when we're a peculiar people, when we belong to Jesus. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions. This is all part of the service. I mean, this is all the same thing. The first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David. 
Okay, they're going back to the old, old-fashioned way of doing things because that was what the law prescribed and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all, the Israel, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. So this continues as a life of worship. Giving. And they set apart what that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You know, the last part of Nehemiah seems like it's it's a it's a it's a it's about a dedication service. It's about a worship service. But we kind of have a wrong idea of what worship is. Because we've come to know worship now as an event. As something you do at an event. And really something that some people would rather not do because it's seen kind of as a religious thing you do at an event. It's the time when you sing songs of praise. And in our culture, it's definitely, we've separated it off into a little, we'll say, let's do worship. Or, and and it's, it's okay. I mean, it, we have words we have to call things, in, you know, what they are. But, I mean, we have a segment, we call it worship time. And we have a worship team, we have a worship leader and leaders. Okay, but, but it, sometimes it's problematic because we, it tends to perpetuate how we think. We really, we, we, our whole life is worship. And it definitely expresses itself in that way. That's what they're doing here. But because of that, then we separate other things that show, that, that really ascribe worth to God. One of them is our money. So we really don't um, think of it as worship. Now, there, there, there are different ways to do it. Like you could be here at church and you can just, you can give your money during the communion time. You can uh, give and put it in the little glass, uh, not glass box, a little clear plastic box and drop it in there. You could do it during that time. Or, and, but that, that alone doesn't make it worship. Because worship is when it becomes inseparable from your life as it did with these, with the Israelites, with the people of God, and they're going back to their way of doing it, and it, it looks like it's going to continue. It's not a one-time thing. They're always giving into the storehouse. They're always tithing, and they're giving their first fruits. So that the temple worship, and the Levites can live, and the priests, and everyone has their needs met, so that this way that God had really designed His people to worship could could happen. And so we can go back to that scripture where Paul says he became poor so that we could become rich. Basically saying, because in that context he actually is talking about money. He's talking to people he needs them to contribute to support sending of people to spread the gospel. He's talking about that we actually become heirs of all the wealth. Everything belongs to him. Nothing belongs to us anyway. So it's a way of worshiping. How you look at your money, is it mine, is it God's? First question. If you say mine, oh, you've, wrong answer. It's not yours, it's God's. Once you realize that, then you've started, you're in the, going in the right direction. 
It's a lot easier to make a decision, isn't it? Sometimes about someone else's stuff. Have you ever noted, noticed that? Has anyone ever given you their credit card and, and to go buy something? You don't really, you're not as cheap when you do that, are you? You know? You're not as much of a bargain hunter when you've got someone else's card. You're like, well, I'm not getting the cheap stuff, I'm getting the good stuff. That's what they would want, you know? But see, you can do that. It actually is what God would want. He wants you to be very generous with His stuff. But not just toward yourself, toward others. He promises to bless you and provide for your needs. Even in your times of seemingly going without anything, Paul tells us that we have peace and contentment even in that, those times. He provides everything we need, everything we need, and more. I remember the first time that it occurred to me um, that, you know, the events of my, of, of my meeting my wife and so on and that low time and the things that had, had happened were not just um, about me and my life, but they were really pointing to, to God and that He was really drawing me to not, to, not to Rebecca only, but to Himself. I remember it was in a worship service. And this was a large church. So they had a choir. And a full band. And it was a big room and there were lots of people. And it was a special worship, worship service. It wasn't even Sunday morning. They were having a special, you know, every night of the week. For every week they did that. Um, not every week, but every year. They had a special service. It lasted all week. And... I remember, you know, I had gone there thinking, I am going to worship. I'm going to show God something, you know. I'm going to show Him I love Him. Or, I, you know, I was really self-centered at that. I was just looking at myself. And I remember the first line to the song. And it's kind of an old song, so... You may not have heard it, but the first line was, when I think about the Lord. And I remember just, I, I remember the music had been going, and then the, the, the worship leader, she was, uh, it was a woman that night, and she kind of, you know, I could tell she's about to sing. I had no idea what it was going to be. And then, when those words came out, when I think about the Lord... I couldn't stand up anymore. My knees went weak. I mean, they were... I, I, I really honestly thought, if I could, I didn't think I could stand up. And I fell to my knees at that point because I knew that God was telling me to think about Him. And the next lines say, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid ground. And then the chorus, and it built up, and the, and the choir shouts, 
It makes me want to shout. They all did that though. (laughs) Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you are worthy of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And I remember I, I did get up and found the strength to stand and I, I raised my hands and I, I remember I had tears. I really don't cry that much. And I lifted my hands and I shouted to the Lord that day. And I had shouted before, but never like that before. And I think about the people of Israel that day when they when their their joy was heard far away. And someone said, Yeah, well that is just talking about the uh the events of that day were spread throughout the land. Okay, fine. But if you were a little animal outside of Jerusalem, you heard that. And there was some shouting, and it was out of a grateful heart what God had done. Because they realized that, oh, we were dead, we were dust, and God has breathed life into us. And uh, as I, I well, we're going to go into communion. I'd like the worship team to come up, please. And um, as as I said earlier, we're not switching gears here. We're not changing what we're doing. Uh, we're in worship right now. We've been worshiping. I hope from the very first song. And as we've been looking into the Word of God. And now we have a a really great chance with our families uh, during communion to really think about the Lord. And what He he did. Now I know you're going to think about some things in your life. Because that day I remember... Flashed all of my life flashed before my eyes. I thought about all the low points, and I remember, oh, that's why. That's okay. Oh, I get it. Oh. It was like oh, I understand that may happen this morning during worship and while you're taking communion. I hope it does because I mean, when you go over there and you're and you're partaking of of the, of the grape juice, which is His blood. And then the, the little piece of bread, that's his body. And think about how he became, what, what he did on the cross, and how he became a curse, became sin, became dead. Oh, but he, death couldn't keep him down, don't get me wrong. He, he's alive. That's the only way we can be alive. His spirit in us.